We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 96. Our guest today has ridden dressage and show jumping, and he is an incredible horseman. He is known for his book that he wrote through Trafalgar Square Books called Core Conditioning for Horses, and it is incredible. I love this idea of conditioning the horse and stretching the body and warming up the body and really utilizing the body and creating a space where the horse can really feel like it can use itself to its full potential. So we're going to learn all about that, all about his book and all about his life. So let's hear it from Simon Kokoza. Well, I would love to hear about how you first got into the equestrian world. Well, I have to thank my family for that. On both sides, I'm half Italian, half English, and my Italian side were cavalrymen for many centuries. Mm. And my British side, my mother was a riding instructor. So uh, it was nurture and nature. Yeah. I didn't have any choice in the matter, I think. Wow. How cool. That's awesome. So you started riding at a young age. What was your mom's kind of experience with training? Was was she a dressage trainer? She was just a general riding instructor at one of the riding schools in London where we lived. Of course, I would go with her every day. And she put me on ponies and, and I sort of worked my way up through the riding school and then started training as an instructor at that, that, that one place called Suzanne's Riding School in London. Mm. Fabulous place. Doesn't exist anymore, but uh, wow. it, it was wonderful. And you were, did you grow up in Italy? Yes, as a child. Okay. Uh, and then came to England to go to school. Okay, got it. What was the equestrian feel in Italy? Did you do a lot of riding in Italy as well, or was that mostly in England? No, I think mostly in England is a sort of, because that was my environment. But mm-hmm. in Italy, certainly, you know, they have their own culture based around the horse, which is, of course, very ancient. But it's a very different mindset towards the horse in Italy. The I think, the, you know, the cavalry schools that, that have obviously taken equitation through the centuries, mm-hmm. they don't really exist anymore. So it's it's very much a jumping environment. In fact, they, they enjoy show jumping very much. Right. But they have some very good, you know, sort of young and up-and-coming dressage riders now. So I think that the the, the history of, of equitation in Italy is sort of coming back. Definitely. So you were going to school in England and riding. At what point, I mean, was it from early on you were like, I want horses to be a part of my life, a part of my career? Or was that something you grew into as you did more and more? Yeah, well, I think there's when your family's in into horses, obviously you're around them, mm-hmm. and so it's never a strange environment. I think that as I got older, I I tried to do other things. I I tried different fields of work, but always found myself really wanting to be around horses. And I think you know I'm very pleased that sort of early enough, I decided to take it up as a profession. Got it. And so you were riding as a dressage rider. And tell me a little bit about some high points, low points as you were coming into yourself and coming into your riding for a career. High points and low points. Well, you know, anyone who rides regularly has both. Definitely. And, you know, and I think when you, when you take this, take this sport uh, and working with horses as a profession, 
you get some real extremes in high points and low points. And obviously, high points are when you make breakthroughs, get results, make connections, understand things more deeply. Low points, well, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously gaps in, in our knowledge where we go through low points to, to learn, mm -hmm. to figure it out. And I would say that as a result, apart from the odd sort of hospital stay, there haven't really been any low points. Yeah. I've either you know been sort of enjoying a deeper connection with the horses or been presented with a puzzle that needs figuring out and you can mm -hmm. figure it all out in the time. So yeah, all high points. Okay, amazing. At what point were you incorporating some travel into your schedule for your riding? Well, again, it, I think that what it, because I've been essentially always training, mm -hmm. um, I, I spent time because I've worked in the UK and all over Europe, but I've been based in France for 20 years okay. in Normandy, which is sort of the horse center. It's the Kentucky of, yeah. of, of France. And so it's been a sort of mixture of, of training, competition, training other people. Uh-huh. And also sort of trying to figure out how the whole thing works. Now, obviously, it works differently in different countries. Mm -hmm. So it takes time to sort of figure out what the market wants and also what the, what the official side, for example, in France, the, the French Equestrian Federation has a very particular way of doing things. And their training methods reflect the French school. Mm -hmm. you know, with the Cadre Noir and so forth. But in Germany, it, it is, again, it's the, the Germanic training system is, is, is different. And, you know, so is the British. So I think that one has to just sort of adapt to where one is and, you know, try and see the merit in each of the systems. Mm -hmm. Definitely. When you were riding and competing in the dressage venue, what were some things that you feel like as a rider that, you know, like maybe throughout a, a test or, or during a competition that you felt like you did really well and you had, you know, like a very proficient understanding of, and what were some areas as it was like coming up in your tests that you're like, oh boy, I hope this goes okay. I'm sure it was like a horse by horse case scenario, but what was what were those high and low points for you? Well, I've had some fabulous horses, and I've been very lucky. Yeah. And uh, also, it, you know, one of my focus the focus of well, a lot of my work in France was young horses, Neat. and France has a very very good young horse uh, competition cycle. Well, I've had a couple of very very nice horses, gone through the cycles with them. You know, young horses classes. It it it's it's a training academy, so. Right. A high point, I suppose, is, you know, when I've taken a horse, for, I had a lovely Hanoverian mare called Dira from Germany. And, you know, we had some wonderful tests. Now, they obviously technically probably, you know, weren't as good as they could be. Sure. But on a five-year-old, you see the merit in what went right mm -hmm. because you're laying foundations. And uh, so you know, that's one particular mare. Yeah. And I actually show jumped in France also in the young horse cycles with a big um, shogun mare called Magda Borealis. She had a, a wonderful couple of years jumping her. Mm. She, she really could jump over the moon. Wow. <laughs> 
That is so cool. Obviously, you have this amazing experience with with your book and with core conditioning. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be and and how you started gaining more knowledge or kind of uh, saw this hole in the industry or different places that you different equestrians could be educated in this way. Okay, that's a really good question, and it's so important because it's uh, it's become the focus of my work now, Mm -hmm. which is. It's a very, very simple principle is when humans do sport, we spend a great deal of time. In fact, the majority of the time uh, with dancers, for example, it's 80 percent of the time preparing the body to do the dance. And we know why. We all know why, you know, range of motion, warming the muscles, stretching. You know, if you're not supple, you can't really perform. Right. And for me, that very simple fact that the horse's body needs exactly the same thing. And we seem to have missed that in our training. And when we find that we have horses that are maybe stiff somewhere or reluctant, Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually down to the fact that they either physically can't perform it or don't understand it or both. And in some sense, they don't have the body confidence to stretch mm-hmm. into the movement. And so it feels tight, gets tighter, and repetition won't solve it. So I would say that my the aspect of, of the industry that I think needs to improve from the most humble sense is to condition the horse's body for work rather than expect work to condition the horse's body. Hmm, definitely. I mean, I think you find so many people and I've definitely been one of those too. You have certain horses that you just say, oh, you know, they're, they're stiff or they drift or they do this or that. And to think that there are, you know, definitely some, some conditioning areas that you can work out some of those areas. It, it's hard. I feel like a lot of us, myself included, would be like, okay, well, then this horse needs, maybe it's time for maintenance injections. Maybe it's time for this, that, and the other thing where really it could be solved with just some conditioning and, and ways for them to get stronger in different areas of their body. So I feel like you've done such an amazing job outlining this for people. And it seems like you've done a bit of a career shift in a way um, where you're really training these principles that you've, that you have put together. When you put this book together and, and all of these principles were these things that you came up with with trial and error and you know like working with the horses and and over time were they different principles that you had learned from other people how did all this knowledge come to be and and you know putting it together i just started to notice you know that the, the, the brain joins dots doesn't it and if you yeah. do something enough you start to realize the interconnectedness of what you're dealing with with, with things that seem to be separate at sure. first sight yeah yeah and uh, so i think that um, what i started to notice uh, having a lot of horses go through my hands a lot of clients you know over the years is that most of the horses are although they display different resistances and different physical capacities their limits and their struggles it gradually started to occur to me that they were 99% of the time rooted in the same place, even though they, you know, the outcome is different, whether it's sort of strain injuries, stress injuries, self-injury, limitations, differences between the reins, the difficulty of one horse to balance and another Mm -hmm. one can, where the template's the same. Uh, And so I started to look at the, obviously, you know, I was very lucky to go to Warwickshire College in, in England and was trained there in anatomy. So I started to look at the anatomy more deeply 
and started to notice that in fact when we sit on a horse we change their posture and the extent to which we change their posture determines their physical abilities and by correcting the posture suddenly horses that can't do things can hmm. i mean with some of them and some of the exercises that i do you you have a, a, a an improvement in an hour simply by helping the horse to carry a part of their body in a, in a more efficient way mm-hmm. particularly focusing around the spinal column because it all happens there if something's wrong there well it'll just rattle all the way through the horse's body you lose all the beauty all the elegance all the balance Mm -hmm. all the enthusiasm and then of course the horse will eventually start to complain quite understandably yeah so yes very much focus on sort of the spinal column and how to keep it optimal and happy is, is definitely the, the sort of nucleus of all or most of the other problems that we face when we're training and riding. Definitely. A lot of times a common struggle would be a rider riding a horse and having difficulty putting that horse in a frame, you know, whether it be at the walk, the trot, the canter. What would be, and I'm sure this is um, an area that you talk about, what would be some suggestions or how do you walk people through finding that frame and balance and impulsion? Right. Well, first of all, I never blame the rider because the rider is obviously trying to do their best. Uh-huh. And if, you know, when if I, if I put a rider on a, a really sort of wise old Grand Prix horse, uh-huh. suddenly they can do everything. Yep. It's it's often only the rider is is just reacting to the fact that their aids are not being reacted to. So I take I take the rider out of the equation. Now when it so when it comes to putting a horse in a frame, I, I try not to look at the rider's technique because if it happened sort of easily and organically, they would just ride it well. People mm-hmm. do. So if somebody has a challenge with putting a horse in a frame, uh, well, I suppose we have to look at what it is. What is a horse in a frame? A horse in, an, in a sort of classical dressage outline would be the, the horse in a particular posture of an excited, when they're excited. Mm-hmm. So they're highly energetic, they're engaged, they're ready to move, they're balanced, they're sort of, you know, in, in a sort of optimal athletic posture so that's what we're trying to induce so to to achieve that the horse has the the horse has to be straight absolutely has to be straight because any sort of misalignment through the spine will make the horse's head raise because the 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 cervical vertebrae in the neck go up and Mm -hmm. the thoracic vertebrae in the back under the saddle go down so then the rider starts to sort of try to to fight the laws of physics and put the horse on the bit in the head and neck which of course the horse is going to complain about because a horse needs to go on the bit from the back mm-hmm. not the head so i would suggest teaching the horse to work long and low for example very well mm-hmm. raises the back and then you can then the horse will be absolutely open to being put on the bit effortlessly Mm-hmm. Once you have gotten a rider to go long and low, what, yeah, what is the next step? Because you obviously then don't want to overcompensate and then the horse is on its forehand. So how do you kind of then go to that next step? I think that, that a horse being on the forehand in long and low means the horse isn't really long and low. Uh-huh. Reason being because the, the horse's um, rib cage 
isn't they don't have a clavicle so it's not attached to the front legs mm-hmm. so there's a hell of a lot of movement yeah. possible of the thorax lifting between the front legs and of course that's what we want because we want the horse's front end to be high and the mm-hmm. back end to be low taking the power behind on the hocks right so when a horse uh, because the horse's head and neck sticks out the front anyway whether it's up or down it weighs the same amount so it's a little bit of a fallacy that the horse drops onto the forehand hmm. if the horse works low and he's on the forehand he was on the forehand anyway yeah, okay. But what happens if the horse goes lower than long and low? And I think that really, say, the muzzle below the chest level, ideally below knee level, is the neutral ligament, which runs from ears to tail in the horse's top line, mm-hmm. is attached to the front of the spine. So the lower the head goes when, it, when the horse really goes long and low, it lifts the front of the spine and thus brings the horse's body into balance. And there's a a reason for this, naturally. Over the millions of years of evolution, the horse has to be ready to sort of leave very quickly Mm -hmm. while he's grazing. Because, of course, horses have to graze for 18 hours a day. Right because grass has to, hasn't got that much nutrition. So, you know, they, 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 they are designed to be more agile when the nose is on the ground than when it's up in the air. Yeah. So by inducing that, teaching them to do this, stretching them like we would a dancer, so their back is completely released across the top line, the body becomes balanced in itself. The head becomes an irrelevance because the head and neck just sticks out the front of the main body of the, the vertebral column. So if long and low, done properly, brings a horse into balance, then once the, the body is balanced and the back is round and it's strong and the muscles are all doing their job and the spine is working perfectly, you can effortlessly lift the head and put the horse in a traditional dressage outline mm-hmm. and the head and neck is weightless. And obviously the horse doesn't need to lean on you Mm-hmm. doesn't need support because he is totally balanced and free. That's my approach. Thanks to our sponsor, Trafalgar Square Books, we have a plethora of equestrian literature to choose from over at horseandriderbooks.com. Whether you're looking to fine-tune your riding or learn a new training technique, read an equestrian novel, or learn about neuroscience of horsemanship, you can find a book that suits your needs over at horseandriderbooks.com. Trafalgar Square Books does an amazing job of finding equestrian authors to really find a perfect book for you, no matter what you are learning or wanting to accomplish in your reading. So make sure you head over to horseandriderbooks.com and take a look at their hundreds of equestrian books. I don't know about you, but once you take a look, you are going to want to go through all of the collection. So thank you so much Trafalgar Square Books. All right, let's head back to the episode. So as you were creating your core conditioning for horses book, how was that process in creating all of these trainings and your approach and then condensing it into a book? How did you pick out what you wanted to include and how you wanted to showcase it? Well, I'm not a trained writer, so (laughs) it took far too long. It took about three years because, again, I had no idea what I was doing. But thanks to the University of Google, You know, it's very educational about how to structure a book. So it's interesting. It doesn't go on too long, doesn't bore your audience and so on. So the, in fact, the book is, is obviously sort of, 
it's a, a lot of input from the the publishers of course because it's their profession to edit and make mm-hmm. things the rantings of a professional <laughs> into something that somebody else can understand yeah but that that book it was in fact the 21st draft because wow. it took a great deal of time to decide what order to put things in how, how to break it down mm-hmm. you know so it really can be used because that's the whole i think that, that was the objective behind the book it's to be something that people go away and say okay my horse falls into this category feels like this Mm -hmm. these are the exercises I should do this is what I should expect and this is how I should go about it with with the absolute attention that they go away do it and feel the benefits very quickly right definitely that is so cool um so now you are I mean besides for COVID stuff, you had been doing a lot of travel, a lot of clinics and and training. Tell me a little bit about how you put these clinics on and, and how that is organized and put together. Well, it's, it's always best when I'm invited because um, it, usually somebody who invites me has a riding club at hand or a large yeah. stable. And of course, then of course, it's easier to organize because everyone's on site. Right. And it, and they have a network, obviously, of interested people and websites and so on. It's ve- putting a clinic together is a very hard thing to do cold, mm-hmm. you know, sort of hiring a venue and selling tickets. Because, of course, you know, I think that, you know, putting your horse in the horse box and, and going to a venue is is, is something you, you only do if you're motivated. Right. And so, you know, it's very location specific. So I tend to work with with people with an existing stable. And uh, we go there and, I, you know, I, I teach their clients, their clients ship the horses in. And that, that works very well. Wonderful. You need to come to Jacksonville, Florida and have a clinic at my barn. <laughs> you don't need to ask me twice. <laughs> okay. Love it. Oh, that's great. What would you say? I mean, and I feel like we've been talking about it this whole time, but what would you say is an area of the industry that you're passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? Well, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. You know, I mean, if you pick up a copy of Xenophon, most of what we talk about's in there mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. And so that was a long time ago. I think that there's one thing that I see in the competitive world, which is I think that there's something that happens to us when we let our ambition overtake our passion. Hmm. And you know, these aren't go-karts or motorbikes. These are living creatures and they're very sensitive. Right. And I do think that from the military sort of history of using horses for war sort of thing, awful as that is, we're still using a lot of methods which treat the horse like it should be forced into doing something. Hmm. For example, I don't like equipment, restrictive equipment. I mean, I've pretty much used every single gadget that's existed, only really to discover ultimately that any restraint is a compression, mm. not only physically, but psychologically. You, you know, this, this creature needs to feel free if it's going to express itself for us. Mm-hmm. And things like side reins. I mean, it's, it's very traditional, very classical side reins. I really think they're an abomination because I think they actually concertina the spine. Mm. When, in fact, all you have to do is stretch it out and it does exactly what you want. fabulously it's designed to so so i think that if there's one thing that if there's one area i'd like to impact is to 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 really sort of 
treat horses as if we love them not just from the ground but when we're training them too like huh. we, we giving them the benefit of the doubt and assuming that they don't understand rather than it just being difficult for the sake of it because that's mm-hmm. really not their nature there if they were like that <laughs> i don't think we'd be riding them <laughs> exactly it's just too dangerous right yeah Absolutely. so yeah have a little bit more empathy for for the horses in the training mm-hmm. definitely yeah be- and i feel like up until maybe a little bit more recently and from help from people like you who who have taken the time to learn from the horse and understand its anatomy but otherwise I feel like there isn't a ton out there for a lot of people to understand and it's almost like it should be uh, you know like a curriculum or part of becoming uh, a professional or part of understanding if you're if you're working with horses on a regular basis to understand kind of the biomechanics of how a horse works and and how its body moves and I, I feel like even just understanding that would be so helpful for people to know and give their horse the benefit of the doubt when they are teaching them a new skill or, or you know honing in on on one or tweaking one or adjusting one and you know just like how you said giving them the benefit of the doubt also that for the most part, most horses are just trying to understand what you're asking them to do. Yes. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. And I think that I think ultimately we have to sort of forgive ourselves. I've made, you know, more mistakes than I'd like to remember. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of them repeatedly. Yeah. So I think that when I see people maybe making unwise decisions or or not viewing it correctly, of course, you we must forgive them. They they just simply don't have the knowledge. And I think that if the, as as a sort of as an industry, things like what you're doing here, your podcasts, bringing in new ideas, interesting professionals, you allow them to to, to express their thoughts. It filters down into you know the horse owners' sort of general knowledge of what they're doing and their passion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, you know, that's the way to, to, to move forwards. The mistakes we make, we have to just accept that. But then I think by gradually allowing the, the, the our attitude to the sport to evolve beyond sort of a military mindset, mm-hmm. you know, where the horse is going to do what I say, that's it. We're, we're getting there. I mean, there are more and more people, I think, training in a very sort of ethical way. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, Um, So it's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what you were saying when we started the interview where not necessarily highs and lows, but opportunities to learn and grow from those situations. And I think that that's how we can view the, you know, the different ways as we shift and adjust our mindset and training patterns and overall knowledge of our, of our horses. Oh, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. And, and it'll happen. It's happening slowly. And I, I feel confident that, you know, when my when my professional career is over, we'll see a much more ethical sport. Even the FEI, you know, the rule changes each year are definitely moving in that direction. The blood rule, very mm-hmm. good. Yeah. You know, I think we need to get rid of uh, a little bit of the equipment. Personally, I'm, I'm actually against spurs, mm. for example. It's a very unpopular viewpoint. In it. Sure. But I think that they will be seen as being unnecessary Mm. if the training is adequate I mean if you know for example if the horse can feel a fly Mm -hmm. you don't need a metal rod that's a good Uh, point yeah well you said that means that there is a way and gradually we'll we will get there I, I know we will it's good Amazing. Well, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate your perspective and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun and the best to you, Bethany. Thank you. 
All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.